Friends, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to continue to study the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. We've spent two weeks in this book, and we heard in chapter 1 this incredible supremacy statement of who Jesus is, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And now all of that is punctuated in our passage today, in these first four verses of chapter 2, by a warning statement. So let's attend God's word as I read from Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's pray together. Father, you have given gifts by your Holy Spirit. We've been speaking of and reflecting of your Spirit throughout this entire service. He's distributed these gifts. They're among us, and I pray that you would use all the faculties that you've given us to attend to your word and to be warned by your word. And we ask that you would do this by your power and your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Well, friends, I'm totally fascinated by all of the different metaphors that the Bible gives us to think about the Christian life. If you just kind of think back through your Bible, you realize that metaphor after metaphor after metaphor comes to us to describe what we're engaged in here. What does it mean to walk in this Christian life and this obedience of faith? Here's just a few of them that the Bible gives. The Christian life is like a baby growing into adulthood. The Christian life, as we heard from Ephesians 2, is like a temple being built. It's like a race, a war, a grove of oak trees, a field of wheat, a flock of sheep, a marriage, a household, table salt, candles. These are metaphor upon metaphor to describe the Christian life. You would think that biblical authors could just find one or two and agree on them and use those as the expression of our faith, but they don't do that. In fact, oftentimes, the same author or speaker will use many different metaphors to describe the Christian life. I mean, think about the many various ways that Jesus describes our faith. On the one hand, he says, entering the Christian life, living the Christian life, is like a branch attached to a vine. It sucks nutrients, and then it bears fruit. We, of course, are the branch. Jesus is the vine. That's a working metaphor for the Christian life. Jesus also said in a different context, in a different place, becoming a Christian, entering the Christian life is like a king who is about to go to war. And he sits down first and decides if he has enough soldiers to win the war before he goes out into battle. In other words, the Christian life is like counting the cost to determine if this is something we're ready to do. You hear these two different metaphors, they're very different in the way they come to us, and you've got to ask the question, which is it? I mean, is the Christian life a garden or is it a battlefield? Is the Christian life this white picket fence laden with honeysuckle branches or is it a battlefield? Is it barbed wire littered with bodies? Because those are two very different mental pictures that come at us from our Bibles. Imagine a church or two churches that each only had access to one metaphor. 
On one side of the street, you have Honeysuckle Presbyterian Church. And on the other side of the street, you have Battlefield Baptist Church. And each are just working within one metaphor from the Bible. I mean, you couldn't even begin to imagine the differences between these two churches and the way they did their preaching and teaching and counseling and thought about their place in our city of Columbia. The point is, No one metaphor can hold the weight of the Christian life, right? No one metaphor can succinctly describe what we're talking about. Now, while there is no monolithic metaphor, there are monolithic messengers. There are those of us who kind of get stuck in one way or another to describe the Christian life. We, We sense this among our friends. I don't think we'd be able to articulate this or think about it in this way. But we know that there are certain friends we go to for certain things and other friends we go to for other things. If I'm at a place in my life where I perceive myself to be really busy and I need permission to rest, I know the certain kind of friends who are going to lean towards the Jesus whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. They're going to tell me to slow down. If on the other hand, I'm at a place in my life where I'm very serious about sobriety or spiritual disciplines, I know the Christians who are going to lean towards the Jesus who tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Very different image of the Christian life, but I know where to go. I think it'd be interesting for each of us to ask ourselves, what's my knee-jerk metaphor for the Christian life? When I find myself describing it to somebody, when I find myself thinking about it, where do I go? What picture do I use to think about this thing? And I think it says more about us than it does our Bibles, right? It says more about maybe our laziness with our Bibles and the metaphors it gives us, and less about the Bible's just incredible scope and vision of what the Christian life is. It's hard to hold all these metaphors in harmony, but even as difficult as that is, the writer to the Hebrews, he's going to give us another one. He's going to lay another metaphor on top of this stack of metaphors we've already have, and he does that in verse one. He says it just in passing. It's almost hard to miss. He says, pay attention or you're going to drift away. Pay attention or you're going to drift away from this thing. Now that verb gives us a word picture. You could imagine this verse as holding on to a rope of salvation in a raging river. If you let go of this thing, you are threatened to be swept downstream. Or it can give us a nautical imagery. We can imagine that we're a ship at sea and we see the safe harbor ahead, but it's not clear if we're going to get there or if we're going to go off and be lost at sea. This is a very intense metaphor. This is a very intense description of the Christian life. We're not talking about light burdens and honeysuckle branches here. We've got a different metaphor, a different word picture for the Christian life. Now you hear this for the first time, the writer to the Hebrews, and how I'm explaining that and the picture I'm building. And you might be thinking, whoa, 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 hang on a second. What about assurance of salvation? I mean, if the Bible teaches anything, it teaches that we are assured in our salvation, right? I mean, doesn't the writer uh, Isaiah say that even though the mountains should crumble, God's steadfast love won't crumble? Doesn't Jesus say that I have sheep in my hand and I will not lose a single one of them? Doesn't Paul say we've been chosen before the foundations of the world and our justification, that is the moment when we accept Christ and are saved, is as sure as our glorification, the moment we step into the new heavens and the new earth. But now all of a sudden it sounds like you're saying, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, that our salvation is like this tiny little rope that is only as sure as the strength of our grip. 
what are we talking about here? If you're thinking that in your seat right now, if you've asked those questions from Isaiah to Paul, I applaud you. And I would say to you, hang on a minute. Take a deep breath, slow down, grab a cup of coffee. We're 15 verses into a 13-chapter book. This is going to take time. Rome wasn't built in a day. The church in Rome, to whom this letter is addressed, is not going to be built in a day. A nuanced vision of the Christian life is going to take time. There's no shortcuts to get there. We've got mountains ahead of us that we've got to climb. And the opening of the writer to the Hebrews is giving us, just gets us acclimated to the altitude that we're going to face. The book is organized in this way. We're going to see this pattern again and again. And that is you have these supremacy statements about Jesus. You hear about the glory of Christ. And then those things are punctuated by warnings. We hear a warning about paying attention to these things or else. So Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, this is like the foothills of the mountain range. We got to climb the first of these foothills in chapter 1, and we got to see that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's much superior to the angels. He has all glory in himself. And just when we get to the top of that foothill, we look in chapter 2, down the other side of it, and we see what awaits those who neglect so great a salvation. It's punctuated by this warning. Now, truly, Hebrews chapter 2 is the most gentle of warnings in the book of Hebrews. You and I were not ready for the peaks and for the warnings that are going to come to us in Hebrews chapter 6 and 10, but that's okay. We're still getting our climbing legs under us, and we're seeing the pattern that this book is going to give us. We're going to get there. For now, the writer to the Hebrews, he wants to do two things. Number one, we're going to compare the giving of the law and the giving of the gospel. We're going to do that and work to see the way those two messages were given. And then secondly, we're going to have a word of application. We're going to come back to verse 1, which is the warning that's undergirded by this comparison. So first the comparison, then the warning. Let's talk about the comparison. The writer to the Hebrews is comparing the law that was given so many years ago. It was given most in a most pronounced fashion on Mount Sinai when the people had come out of Egypt. He's comparing that versus the giving of the gospel that was declared by Jesus. So look at verse 2. The beginning of verse 2 says, For since the message, and by message he means the law, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, skip ahead to the end of verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That is the gospel. In other words, in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, if Israel was accountable to that law, and if those who rejected that law were judged by that law, how much more so for those of us who have received the gospel will we be held accountable if we neglect it or reject the message that Jesus gives to us? It's a comparison between the giving of the two things. Let's look more closely at the law. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. He says, it was declared by angels, it proved reliable, and it taught us that every transgression was accounted for. Now you think back to when you read the book of Exodus and we read it as a church together and you get to chapter 20 on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and you don't see any references to angels. That doesn't occur in Exodus, but it is um, 
corroborated, accounted for in later passages in the New Testament. We hear in places like Galatians chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7 that indeed angels were working to mediate the law between God and man. Now God gives the law, but this is extremely important for us to remember because I think this is an often confused point of the Old Testament law. When God gave this law to Israel, it was never, ever, ever meant to be a religion of works. God has always, since the fall of man, saved humanity by grace through faith. He's done it in the Old Testament and he's done it in the New Testament. We can see it in the Old Testament simply by the chronology of what happens. God first saves Israel, right? He leads her out of Egypt in the Exodus. He leads her into the desert and then he gives Israel the law. And so you have salvation before Sinai. This is a giving of commands to people who have already been saved. If any Israelite will come and trust in God alone for her salvation, she will be saved. So the law is never a means of salvation to get to God, but it's a message of how we live this new life of salvation with God. It doesn't get us to God, it teaches us how we live in this relationship with him. You could think about a very simple illustration within our families and the teaching our kids about table manners. We sit around the dinner table as a family together and we say to each other, look guys, we don't chew with our mouth open, at least not in our culture, because that's disrespectful to people around you. We don't interrupt somebody and speak over them when they've started to say something, because that doesn't show kindness to the person sitting next to us. When we're done with our food, we don't just jump down and run off to our room. We say thank you to the person who made the food, and then we clear our dishes and take them to the sink. Now, all of these things are not ways to get into our family, right? That's already been established a long time ago. That's sheerly by the grace of our parents extended to us. But now that we're in this family, now that we're part of this family, we need to learn how to operate in harmony as a family. That's a simple way to think about the giving of the law. The same is true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. We stand as New Testament believers. We've been saved only by Jesus and what he has done for us, by grace through faith. And yet we look back to the moral law in the Old Testament. We look to a slew of commands in the New Testament. And these are not how we get to God. This is not a means of our salvation. This is teaching us as believers. This is how you live in the household of God. These are your table manners with one another. This is how we live in harmony with each other. Now, that being said, that being how the law operates and how we think about the law in the Old and New Testament, there's two ways that the Old Testament law can get sideways on you. It's a, it's a religion of grace through faith, but there's two ways you can get burned by the law in the Old Testament as an Israelite, and here they are. Number one, you completely ignore the law. So you think in the Old Testament, I'm an Israelite, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. He's my forefather. I belong to this people. And yet you've ignored the law and your life looks exactly like a Gentile. That was true of many of the crowd who came out to hear John the Baptist speak. And you remember what John said to them? He said, do not claim Abraham as your forefather and live like this. If God wanted children from Abraham, he could raise them out of the stones. But I tell you that the axe is laid at the root of the tree and every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and it is thrown into the fire. 
First way to get burned by the law is to completely ignore the law. The second way the law can get sideways on you is if you do something very different. You take the law and you seek to use it as a means of your salvation. Now, God has saved you by grace through faith. He's already led you out of Egypt. But instead of trusting in his righteousness on your behalf, you use the law to kind of build your own righteousness. This was, of course, the perennial problem of the Pharisees. They took the law and they took selective parts of the law and they wanted to show themselves as righteous before other people, proclaim their righteousness and say, I'm thankful that I'm not like this tax collector or this prostitute or this other person because I live a holy life. And Jesus came to them and said, you're like a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You have the appearance of holiness, but inside of you is death. It's all death because you cannot live this righteous life. So if you ignore the law, or you use it as a means of salvation, in other words, if you're guilty of licentiousness, doing whatever you want, or you're guilty of legalism, using the law to earn your way of salvation, then verse two applies to you. It says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. You do that, and you stand under the judgment of God. You're guilty, and you're accountable to that guilt. Now, you take that entirety of the giving of the law and how we understand the law, and the writer wants to compare that to the nature of the giving of the gospel. He says in these verses, the gospel is declared by by Jesus, it was attested by witnesses, and then it was accompanied by miracles. So he wants to set up this comparison and how these two things were delivered. Now think about if you were on the scene with the giving of the law. You had come out of Egypt, you had crossed the Red Sea, you've gone into the desert, and you come before Mount Sinai, and God is going to appear on Sinai and deliver the law to Moses. That was an incredible scene. I mean, the Bible describes this scene. There's thunder and there's lightning. God descends in fire and the whole mountain is wrapped in smoke and the thing shakes and nobody can come near to it or touch it. If you had been standing there that day and seen that scene, I promise you, you would have never forgotten it. It was tremendous. It was incredible. It was awe-inspiring. And yet the writer to the Hebrews says, that was just the warm-up. That was kind of a testing of the PA system. That was a check one, two on the microphone to make sure that God could communicate something from himself to man. But here is the main event, the gospel itself, in which God takes on human form. Jesus walks among us and he declares this gospel of his salvation. When he does that, the entire Trinity goes to work. Jesus is speaking. God is using miracles and signs and wonders to attest to it. And the Holy Spirit is giving gifts to his church. God is pulling out all the stops. He's breaking physical laws. He's attesting to this salvation. And all of a sudden, surrounding the time of Jesus and the time of the early church in Acts, you have this flurry of supernatural activity. I mean, think about this one aspect of the supernatural things that happen in the uh, attesting of the gospel. I imagine the angels who had seen all the way from Genesis to this point were completely dumbfounded because up until the time of Jesus, the last time the world had seen someone rise from the dead was in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. 
Those two prophets who lived sometime after our series in 1 Samuel, a thousand years before Jesus was born, they called Israel to repentance and they performed resurrections. God used them to to have people rise from the dead. It's been a thousand years since the world has seen that or experienced that. And all of a sudden, a man named Jesus from Nazareth, he walks into the town called Nain, and he sees a widow carrying out her only son who is dead, and he stops the entire funeral procession, and he speaks a word, and boom, this son sits up and starts talking. And then Jesus encounters a man named Jairus who tells him that his daughter is dead, and without even going there, Jesus speaks a word, and the daughter gets up from the dead and begins speaking. And then Jesus goes to see his friend Lazarus, who has been dead for three days, so that we know he is absolutely, truly, surely dead, and Jesus calls to him, and Lazarus gets up from the dead and walks out of his tomb. And then Jesus himself is crucified. He dies on the cross. He spends three days in a tomb and he gets up from the dead and walks out and speaks to his disciples. And then Jesus, after he's ascended and he's no longer in earth doing ministry, Peter goes out in his name declaring this gospel and he shows up in a town called Joppa and he stands over a dead saint named Tabitha and he speaks a word to her and God raises her from the dead. And then Paul, he's preaching in a room on a third story and a man named Eutychus, he falls out of the window and he drops and he lands and he dies and Paul rushes down with the entire crowd that was there and he lies on top of him and Eutychus gets up from the dead and you see all these things and you're asking, what on earth is happening? What is going on? This is going on. God is attesting to the good news of the gospel. God is breaking all physical laws. He's overcoming all obstacles and barriers. There's not a cost too great for God in his love to attest that this gospel is true. I speak it and it's truth and I declare it to you. This is the comparison. If we're accountable to the giving of the law, the practice, the warm-up on Mount Sinai, how much more so to the good news of the gospel that has been attested to by God and the Spirit and spoken by Jesus, how much more so are we accountable to that? What will become of the person who neglects so great a salvation? Well, that brings us just very briefly to our second point, the point of application, which gets us back to the metaphor that we started with. Hanging on to the good news of the gospel, paying attention to it, lest we drift downstream. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Very simple application. Pay attention, give heed, listen closely. Now, as a Christian, when I hear a word like that, pay attention or else, that can send us into a tailspin really quickly, right? We begin to ask on our own, in our seat, between us and God, am I paying attention? I mean, am I paying enough attention? If I haven't really picked up my Bible in this past week, does that mean that Jesus has lost my attention? Is there any sense in which I'm already drifting downriver and I don't even know it? We begin to ask those questions, and if nobody checks those questions, they can take us into a very dark hole of despair. 
In fact, the devil would want nothing more than to cause us to question unceasingly the assurance of our salvation. He would be delighted to distract us in that way. It can drive us to despair, but there's another sense in which a warning can snap us to attention and drive us to Jesus. I mean, think about what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. He's saying we need to pay much closer attention to what we have heard, but he's already told us what we have heard in chapter 1. And when we flip back in our Bibles to chapter 1 and we reread what we have heard, we find that it is completely and entirely about Jesus, this greater and better prophet, priest, and king. Why do we pay attention to Jesus? Why do we heed him? Why do we love him? Why do we find ourselves in him? Because if Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, to whom else can we go for comfort? If in these last days God has spoken to us through his son, to whom else can we go for truth? If Jesus, after making purification for sins, has sat down at the right hand of the Father, to whom else can we possibly go to be clean? To whom else can we go if we don't pay attention to Jesus? Now, I'll admit, when I hear that, I I want to do that. I want to apply that. But pay attention is kind of a very abstract command for me. I'm not sure exactly what you want me to do. I'm willing to do it, and it sounds important, but how do I do it? The more we read the book of Hebrews, the more we're going to realize that paying attention to Jesus is not some ethereal, disembodied, waif-like state of mind. I mean, it's not all prayer retreats and incense burning and juice fasts. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that this is actually a very practical thing that happens in the means of grace that God has given us through his church. It's actually very normal things. Paying attention to Jesus is gathering together in worship together on Sunday. Paying attention to Jesus is opening our Bibles and reading and studying it. Paying much closer attention to Jesus is confessing our sins to him and to each other. Paying attention to Jesus is finding the relevance of Jesus and the worship of Jesus in everything we already do in where we live, work, and play. And when we do that, when we pay much closer to Jesus, when we hold fast to this salvation that we've, he's given us, we find in turn that Jesus is holding faster to us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would this be true of us? Would we pay heed to this new and greater word of salvation? Would we pay attention Would we work and strive to follow hard after you? And even as we do that, would we turn and find that you are holding fast to us, Lord? You've saved us, you've delivered us, and now you delight to draw us home. We ask that you would remind us of these things and continue to grow our image of you. In Jesus' name, amen.